Let's then turn in our Bible to the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 6 today. I hope to finish chapter 6. Uh, I'll be reading from verse 9, even though that's halfway through a, a, a block. I'm going to read from verse 9 down to the end of the chapter. So I hope that's okay. If it's not, I'm sorry. I'm not going to change. Okay. So, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9 to the end of the chapter. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case. Things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received that which was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves. And oaths confirm what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make sure the unchanging nature of his purpose or wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf and has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Now we, everybody remembers, because I've been hammering on this point for ages, In this book, it's not really a book, it's a sermon. You're listening to a sermon preached by a pastor to his people. It is particularly a Hebrew pastor speaking to Hebrews in the first century. People who have been born again in in Judaism. And they're still Jews. And they're in the Jewish context. But now... The differences between the Jewish traditions and the reality of the Christian faith are beginning to show. The rubber is hitting the road. They're being tested in their faith, in their commitment to Christ. Are they going to break away from all of the old traditions, all of the old habits of the old life? Just do everything that everybody else does just for a quiet life, to avoid 
the small conversations, those awkward conversations, to avoid difficulties with the family. Remember Jesus warned, your enemies will be the people of your own household. Father shall turn against son, mother against daughter, brother against brother, child against parent. Christ came not to bring peace, but a sword. And in the context of that, Christ is speaking to his people through the writer of Hebrews. And he's calling them to faithfulness. And he's lifting in their eyes the superiority of Jesus Christ over the traditions, over the habits, over the cultural belief. Now, you and I, we don't really have the same context because we live in a very atheistic society. Yes, we have the state church and there are pressures there. Infant baptism, when you have babies, it's automatically assumed, when's the name day? When's the baptism? We're all looking forward to confirmation. Are your kids going to confirmation? What age are they? Oh, they are, are they going to confirmation? And the people already give them gifts, confirmation gifts or whatever. There are, in our context, yeah, there are, there are expectations, but they're nothing like the expectations that the Jews experienced. It was almost as if you were saying that everybody else were wrong. And that you were right. And it's almost as if you're saying that somehow in some way it was a crime, a blasphemy to go to the temple and offer up sheep or lambs or goats or doves or whatever they did in sacrifice. Because you no longer need it. Jesus is our sacrifice. And people got very annoyed about this. Caused great trouble. And if you know the history of the first century church, you see that there was continual difficulties. Indeed, look at the, 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 the record in the book of Acts. The stoning of Stephen. Saul, who became Paul, going around the communities, hunting Christians, imprisoning men, women, and children for their participation in the faith. It wasn't like today where we all respect one another, you know, oh, you have your opinion and I have my opinion. And we all... No, it was difficult and different. And what was happening was the Hebrews were being tempted to go back. Those Christians in the Hebrew context, they were tempted to go back. They were tempted to make concessions and compromises. And the writer here is trying to show them the superiority of Christ over the traditions, the ceremonies, the symbols of the Jewish faith. And as he's going through, he gets to these portions when he's so inflamed with pastor fire, preacher fire, that he can no longer just go on with his message. He has to stop and address the congregation. Because he knows these people. And he knows the problems that they're going through in their life. He's not just preaching over their heads. He's not shooting in the dark. He's speaking to the people that are in front of them. That he knows. And he knows the difficulties. The problems that they're going through. 
And he sees the beginnings of falling away or moving back. He's so overcome with concern that he has to stop in the middle of his sermon and address them with exhortations. He speaks to them personally, challenges them. and That's fantastic and great. And here in this time, he's just rebuked them. Chapter 5 and chapter 6. He rebukes them for being like children. Even though by this time they should be adults. Indeed, they should be the teachers. The word like, is like masters. You know in the olden, olden days you had apprentices and you had masters. You know you had people who taught you stuff. So if you wanted to go into business, you didn't just go to college and study at college. Doctor college or computer college or whatever Daniel does. College. You didn't do that. You apprenticed with someone. You went alongside and you learned from them for years and years and years. And the knowledge was passed on. The idea here is by this time you should have qualified from your apprenticeship. You should no longer just behaving like a child, an infant. You should be a grown up, but you're still just a baby. There is a sharp bite to his message. And yet, still in that pastor's heart, he doesn't want to browbeat them and so burden them with guilt that they are fearful for their own salvation. Who of us is perfect? Oh, there's problems in my life. And I've said this before. We who are Christians, we... Panic over the smallest little detail. If there's some sort of unholy issue, difficulty. I haven't prayed this week. That's not a small thing, but still. And it becomes almost the end of the world. And I've said this before. If you compare the people of the world with their lying, cheating, selfish natures with the people of the kingdom... And then a person from the kingdom shares their troubles, their worries, their fears with someone from the world. They kind of look at them and go, that's your sin. Because we who are Christians, we understand the, 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 the reality of sin. We understand the nature. And for us, even a thought is as bad as a deed. And this pastor, this preacher doesn't want to overburden his people with such fear and guilt that now he turns and consoles them. He comforts them in this. In verse 12 of chapter 6, he says, we don't want you to become lazy. Another way of understanding the same sentence is, we don't want you to be lazy. And the the idea is that they are being lazy. It's not that he's saying, I, I don't want you to fall into laziness. He's literally saying, I don't want you to continue in being lazy. And I warned you last time about the dangers of being a lazy Christian. The dangers of knowing these truths. Knowing all the things that Christ has done for you. And the great potential That there is for knowing God and yet remaining comfortable 
and content where you are. Keeping God at arm's length. Being happy in your life. Not living a Christian life before the people. I'm not saying being in sin, but just simply being invisible. We have people in our lives that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. We have people in our circle of influence, wherever we are, whether it be job or clubs, neighborhoods, wherever, they don't know the Lord. And they have no concept that they're heading towards hell. They understand they're sinners, for we all understand that we're sinners. The Bible says that God has written his law upon our hearts. So when you lie, you know you're doing wrong. When you take something that doesn't belong to you, you know you're stealing. When a husband flirts with another woman who is not his wife, he knows he's doing something wrong because he'll hide that fact from his wife. Whoop! And I'm sure it's the same the other way. A wife who flirts with a man who she's not married with will hide that fact. Why? Because they understand and know Genetically, it's built into our code. God has constructed it into us. The law has been written upon our hearts so that we know that we are sinners. We know. And yet, we don't have to be. We who are Christians, we, 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 don't have to be lazy in the life that we live. We can speak to the people around us. We can live in such a way as to demonstrate to them the reality of God in our life. And not just be content to let everybody else go up to hell in our experience. I live my best life now and to hell with everybody else. I don't care. There are people in my experience that are suffering, that are in difficulties and God has given me the means to help them I look after me and mine if God wants to help them he can help them but not necessarily through me we become lazy we're lazy in our Bible reading I kind of know what the Bible says so what's the point I don't need to read it anymore I kind of know what it says I've read it in the past I don't need to maintain my living relationship with God. My prayer life. Ooh, ooh, don't talk to me about my prayer life. I have prayed in the past. But now I've become lazy and inactive. And the danger is, Christian, you can become lazy. And the writer here, or the Holy Spirit through the writer here to the church way back then, all the way through the ages to the church today, to you who are sitting here today, the Holy Spirit would say to you, I do not want you to be lazy. But to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Through faith and patience. Faith the expectations, the knowledge of what God has done and therefore the steadfast, strong belief in it. Patience, that doesn't mean inactivity, doing nothing. Noah had patience when he built the ark. He didn't sit there and wait for a boat to fall out of heaven. Well, when all the animals show up, I'm sure God will provide something. 
I'm sure all the food will collect itself for all, all the straw needed, all the water needed to feed those animals, the thirst, whatever. He was not inactive in his patience. He was active. And as Christians, our faith is not to be one of inactivity. That's not patience. We are to live in such a way as we know the flood is coming. We know an end is coming. Whether we be that we die in this life. We die, I die, and I am put in the ground or burned. Whatever desire decides to do with me, I don't mind. Put me in a jar up on the shelf. Or the Lord comes back. He tears open our reality and streams through with his myriad, his countless angels, who then the Bible says will come forth and snatch up his people. And terrible times then are unleashed upon the earth. Suffering that has not been seen since the beginning of the earth. Terrible times wait when the Anger, the vredi, the wrath of God is poured out upon this earth. Am I inactive? Or am I active? The Bible calls Christians co-laborers with God. Did you know that? That you are saved unto service. Good works that should accompany you. Your faith is known by your deeds. Christian, are there deeds accompanying your faith? Or is it just talk? Because we, we're very good, aren't we? Some of us more than others at talking. Where's the best place to hide a tree? In the forest. We who talk a lot are easy to camouflage and make a sound as we do things. But are, is there real deeds? Is Christ reaching through you and impacting this world? It's not because he doesn't want to. It's not because he's gone off somewhere and is busy planning his trip back. No, he stands there waiting. And we are to be the co-laborers. We are to be his hands and feet, his heart, his mouth, his face. We are the church, the body of Christ here on earth. And we are to demonstrate the reality of him in this life here and now to our generation. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, he said. Now he didn't just say that to the apostles who were standing there. That's a continual command to his people through all time. That is the mission statement. The vision statement as Don once called it. The vision statement of the church, of our church. We have a purpose. Not to live our best lives now. Not to sunbathe upon a sandy beach somewhere in the Caribbean. Lord, send me to the Caribbean as a missionary. Or here in Finland, wherever, you know. But there is to be a plan and purpose in Christian you can miss it by being lazy. Now, of course, again, he consoles them in that they are missing out. They have become lazy. They have become complacent. 
They are doing nothing in their walk. Or very little. He's not saying they're unbelievers. Though there is a warning there for unbelievers. He is saying that they're behaving like unbelievers. They have lost that little bit of spark. That drive. That little something that's needed to get them moving again. And he's in this portion. It's assumed that he's, he's concerned that they will think that they're not believers. That they'll be so down upon themselves. So dismayed. So given up. Or given to given upness. It's not a word but it's my word so it is a word now. That they'll just stop. So here he fixes their attention upon Abraham. Like we all know Abraham. God made promises to Abraham. Like this promise is from Genesis 22 verse 19. The, the, where just after he's trying to give up his son. You know, God appears to him and he makes, makes this great promise to him. To Abraham. And Abraham waited and received and the promise was achieved through. But it wasn't Abraham who made the promise. That's the point here. He, the point is, who made the promise? Who kept the promise? How do you know the promise is true? How do you know that it will happen? And we use the word promise, covenant is maybe a better word. God makes a covenant, a promise, an agreement with Abraham. But was it based upon Abraham? You know, in the olden days, maybe still today, we would, when we were saying that someone came to faith, we would say, he gave his heart to Jesus. He asked the Lord to save him. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Give his heart to Jesus. And all of a sudden in your mind, it's your responsibility. You give your heart to God. You ask God to save you. In some way, somehow, you, you maybe did that. Really, it's you bow the knee. You accept his kingship over you. You receive that salvation. You purposely, in your mind, bow the knee. But it's because of an act of God upon you. A sovereign work changing you from a sinner dead in your trespasses and sins. He raises you up to life just as Jesus called Lazarus forth from the grave. Even though he'd been in there and stank. Lazarus didn't say, you know what Jesus, I'll be out in a moment. Let me just have a shower. Let me just change clothes. Lazarus was dead. And in the same sense, we spiritually were dead and Christ called us forth. And here in this point, he is fixing their attention, not upon Abraham, but upon the one who gave the promise. And if God's promise to Abraham was true and was achieved and was fulfilled, God's promise to you, to Christ, shall be fulfilled. Your salvation is not of yourself. It comes from God. God worked on your behalf. And when he did so, it wasn't a covenant between you and him. He swore by his own name. He achieved salvation for his glory. 
and he gave it to you. This is how you and I then can trust him. Though we might be in difficulties, though we might be in mundane everyday circumstances. J. Oswald Chambers, the man who wrote the book, My Utmost for His Highest. It's a devotional, daily devotional. It's very famous. I don't know if you know it. I always remember once when I was reading the mornings and evening things with him in that book. Uh, he made a comment that from, a, I can't remember what, which text it was from, but it always stuck in my head. That most Christians are not destroyed in the, or, or, or overcome, worn down in the furnace of tribulation. He said, we see from, from Israel's story that they did not fall away when things were, happen, were, having, were bad for them. When things were bad for them, they sought the Lord. And the Lord rescued them. But when things were good for them, when things were okay and every day, that's when they began to become unfaithful. And J. Oswald Chambers in his book, My Utmost for His Highest, he says, it is the mundane, every, the grey, everyday porridge days that destroy Christians. It's when everything is just the same, day after day, and not, there's no great mountaintops or tremendous valleys. We're not on an adventure, but it's like a big plain. Just Life is just good and normal. The Lord has blessed us, and we are in the fullness of his blessing. And, and in that, we then we, we kind of look around for the high places. We kind of look around for the adventure. It's then the enemy comes and is able to whisper in our ear, and that lead us astray. We are to remember that Christ has done this on our behalf. And it's in him we have received. So the writer here is asking us to look not unto ourselves or to our successes or our failures, but to remember who achieved our salvation on our behalf. It wasn't because of your religious activities. It wasn't because you did a certain ceremony or you maintain a certain kind of religious ceremony. You take the Lord's Supper. You were baptized. You baptized your children. Your name was written in some book somewhere. You put your hand up when the preacher asked you to. You prayed this prayer. None of that matters. Beloved, You are saved. You have faith. You are walking and are kept in the way. Not because of you and your faithfulness. Or your unfaithfulness. But because of the faithfulness of God. For even when we are unfaithful. He cannot be unfaithful. God is faithful. Praise God. Hallelujah. Should have heard an amen. Beloved. Verse 17 The Bible says here, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things it is impossible for God to lie. We know that we are safe and secure in him because of the very nature of our God. He is the God of truth. 
He is not a deceiver. He didn't start a good work in you just to leave you and let you go. He didn't awaken you in order for you to fall asleep again and to be in a worse condition than you were at the beginning. Press on. He's encouraging them. Press on. Don't hate God because things are going well for you. Don't hate God because there's stability in your life. Don't look for instability. It's funny. Human beings. As a pastor, you realize this very soon. People are addicted to drama. People need drama in their lives. They need a little spice and chili in their circumstances. Even you fins with your seriousness. He said, she said, that said, ooh. You might not be as volatile as Irish people, without a few drinks in you, of course. Not that you people drink. But uh, inside, internally, there's a war of emotions, isn't there? We are to be reminded that our faith and our walk and our salvation is not dependent upon us. Now, the extent of the measure is dependent upon us. Your walk is dependent upon you. God's not going to come down and start making you pray. He's not going to come down with the, the Holy Ghost uh, electric shock cow thing. You know those things that they use in America to, to make cows move forward? Like a taser. And every time you're supposed to pray, tease you. Oh! You, okay, Lord. God's not going to come down and stand over you. Because he wants you to follow him. He looks for hearts that seek him. The Bible says that God earnest, uh, God rewards those who earnestly seek him. He doesn't want reluctant followers. He doesn't want half-hearted obedience. He wants a people who are zealous for good works. Zealous. Passionate. God wants you to be passionate like Finns. I'm not saying you have to be like Kai, loud and arm swingy. Someone said I look like a gibbon, you know, like one of those monkeys that move their arms all the time. God is not requiring you to be an Irishman or a South African. He requires you to be you, but zealous, passionate for his glory and for his name. For the building of his kingdom. Whatever and however that looks like. Unashamed. I have said from the very beginning. When we, we started this church. Don, Johanna and Sarah were the only ones who were there at the beginning. From the very first service. It is my desire that we would have a church. That is unashamed of the gospel. Unembarrassed. You're not afraid to speak to people. Or to bring it up. So when people look at you and say, well, I don't understand how, when there's still this going on, you always seem to be together. You always seem to come back, land on your feet. When the stresses and strains would rip ordinary people apart, there are you. You always seem to have the right answer. You're the person that people come to because you're the rock. And I want you to be able to turn around and say, it is not I, but Christ in me. It is, the, it is the, the power of Christ in me that enables me to overcome all things. I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. 
beloved, God desires of you to, to be unashamed of the gospel. God wants you to know who he is in the fullness and to act upon it. Remember, this is the, the, the core. You must always remember that you are who you are because of him. It is by his grace that you are saved. Undeserved kindness. I don't know if you've seen any of the memes or you followed the trial of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. You know, and the lawyer asks Johnny Depp, I've seen it in memes that the lawyer asks Johnny Depp, and you pay, you poured yourself a mega pint of red wine. And Johnny Depp goes, a mega pint of red wine. Like, what's a mega pint of red wine? And I thought, oh Lord, I want a mega pint of your Holy Spirit. <laughs> I don't know how big a mega pint is, but there's something, not just an ordinary pint, but something great and glorious and magnificent. Oh, that there should be an increase in our life. And it comes from the knowledge that we are saved by His grace. God has given us a mega pint of His grace. We are beholden to him. Please remember that you would be on your way to hell without God acting on your behalf. That you'd still be under the influence of the enemy, the, the devil. You'd be a slave in his kingdom. You would be a prisoner of your own sin. Abused by the sin of others. Constrained and all alone in the darkness of this world. And yet God in his mercy, not because of anything that you did. Not because of anything about you. Because God in himself decided that he would save you. And deliver you and bring you out of the darkness and into the light. Beloved, does that not create in you a, a sense of thanksgiving? Of beholdenness. That you owe God something perhaps. You are beholden to him. That somehow in some way you belong to him. Because the Bible says that we are purchased by his blood. We are redeemed. That means we were in jail. In prison. In bondage. And he went and paid the price to have us delivered. Not so that you could be free. Not so that you could go off and do your own thing. Well, thanks very much for letting me go there. Open the door and off you go and do your own thing. No. He purchased you in order that you might be a, a member of his household. That you might be a part of his family. That you might serve him. That he might adorn you. So beloved, again, let's not... Be lazy. Let's not continue in our laziness. Let's remember that God desires us to continue in the faith. To be passionate for his kingdom. To be those who imitate the faith of those who have gone before. Think of the biblical characters. We'll look at that again in Hebrews 11 later on. God willing if we ever get there this century. 
We are reminded of what biblical faith looks like. And you're to imitate those. Think of those in this life who are older than you in the faith. Or the, the biographies that you've read of those who have lived before us. The great deeds that they have done. They have pressed on to areas that we can't even see. Experiences of God that we can't even imagine. That God so glorified himself through the frailty of men. Here it says this again in verse 19. That we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. And I love this guy because he chops and changes his metaphors as quickly as an Irishman. He, he talks about an anchor for the soul. And then he moves on quickly and he goes on to a, a Christ going beyond into the inner sanctuary. He's talking about, and then it says here that we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us in verse 18, the end, 18b. The idea there is a people fleeing to a place of refuge. So if an enemy army was advancing, the Russians are coming down, the Russians are coming, what are we going to do? Well, in ancient Israel, they used to have hill forts, places built on big cliffs, big cliffs, and people would retreat up onto these things. And they would, they would be there during the time of the, the, I was going to say alien invasion, the alien invasion, the, when the enemy army was there. And they would be in this safe place, a place of refuge. They would flee to this place of refuge. He's using this image that we have, we have fled to a safe place. He uses the anchor of the soul. And the idea there is in the ancient world, during the stormy seasons in the Mediterranean, they would have all the boats anchored in safe harborage. And they would have a, to get the boats into the safe harbor, they would have a man get into a little rowing boat and row out in the storm in this rowing boat with a rope tied from his rowing boat to the big boat. And he'd have the anchor in the rowing boat. And he would row out into the middle of the safe area and he would take the anchor and he would throw it overboard. And then the boat would pull itself into the harbour and it would be safe. And that job of being the man who rowed out with the anchor, I'm sure it was more than one or one, but normally it was one man. It was an incredibly dangerous job. You imagine you're in a stormy sea with a, a big anchor in your boat. And the boat's going like this. You drop it overboard and then you have to either row back or wait for them to come to you. And the idea that Jesus Christ has gone before us. Jesus Christ has laid that anchor and it's secure and it's safe. And we are now in a place of safety. Jesus did that for us. And again, he changes his metaphor to the inner sanctuary of the high priest who has gone before us. He has gone through the veil. He has gone from this existence into heaven. And he has made a way for us. He has obliterated that veil. That veil no longer exists for his people. It's not like he, he has gone behind the veil and we can't go with him. It's not like he's behind the veil and he's like, and he kind of peeping around the veil. It's not that way. It is the fact that he has demolished, obliterated, removed that veil and he has created an access 
by which you and I can enter into that inner sanctuary. He's reminding them what Jesus has done for them. And why we can be secure and stable in our faith. Why we need to not be lazy. Why we can stir up ourselves to good deeds. Not just be camouflaged Christians. Not just those who compromise and say nothing and let people go to hell and get away with it. He's trying to stir them up to good deeds. He's trying to remind them, quicken them. We, we who are reforming pastors, I can't say I'm a reform, but we all know, reforming pastors, there's this great temptation not to preach for people's emotions. You know, in the olden life, in the olden days, we would tell uh, three funny stories on emotional ending and then make a big appeal for the money. Um, and in the new life, in this, the new reformed, reforming way of doing things, it's often very tempting just to lay out what the word says. God says this is, and, and leave it very kind of, now you must pick and mix. You, you have to kind of sort through yourself. But this preacher, this writer, this pastor to his people, he's all about reaching your emotions. He wants to get these Hebrew people stirred up. He wants them to lift up their eyes from their hardships, their situation, their difficulties, their uncomfortable situation, and to be reminded of who they serve and to become impassioned again, to be quickened, to get back into the habit of serving God. Because we can get out of the habit and we form the bad habit of just doing that. We come to the Sunday worship. We, we do the other meetings. But otherwise, yeah, we live a Christless life. He doesn't want you to live a Christless life. He's trying to remind you. God did this. He swore by his own name. He did this for you. He saved you. Now don't give up. Don't give in. Don't give in to the nothing. Don't give in to the... You've always been like this. You'll always be like that. There is a great life available to you. He has become, Jesus, a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And now he's about to enter into his central theme of this book. He, he's introducing us again to Jesus, the high priest of the eternal order of Melchizedek. Something otherworldly and alien to us. He wants you to see the, the greatness of the position of Christ. Not just that he's a priest or a high priest like all the rest, but he is something so unique. Something that we can be proud of. Something that we can lift up and put our faith in and not be ashamed of. So the Jews were tempted to be ashamed. Jesus had been crucified, had been sentenced to death by the Romans, had been buried in a borrowed tomb. That was a shameful act. He died a pauper, penniless. And yet here the writer is wanting to remind us, look unto Jesus. So beloved, 
the Spirit of God would say to us through this text, don't continue to be lazy in your faith. Don't continue to be complacent. Just happy in the way things are. Happy with what God has given you. And therefore, you know, or troubled in your heart because of circumstances. He wants you to be able to press on through remembering what God has done for you and the promises that God has made for you. That he will never leave you or forsake you. That there is an experience, a potential Christian life that is available to you. A closeness and nearness. An active, ongoing and inward sanctification that you can be transformed and changed. And that God can touch this world through you. Not in a charismatic, crazy sense. But in a real and personal sense. Think of the people in your life. The people around you. You are to be the oracle of God unto them. We pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to this person. We pray that I do at least. Lord, Holy Spirit, please speak to that person. Please touch that person. But you know that the, the Holy Spirit wants to speak through you. He wants you to be the voice, the face, the presence, the person of Jesus. He's not going to do what the charismatic apostle suggests that he does. But he appears. Ah, those heretics, those blasphemers who say, I was in the bathroom and Jesus appeared to me while I was on the toilet. It's foolishness, blasphemy, lies. God's method and mean in this world means in this world is you and me, the church of God. So beloved, press on. Press on. Don't give up. Don't be overcome either through persecution or simply the nothingness, the, the ambience of careless Christianity. Press on. Remember what your God has done for you. Remember that he did it for his own glory. And that he will never give up on you. He will never give in and say, If you are his, you are his. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, please help us. Please help us, Lord. We know and realize that we have been so blessed, that you have given us so much. Lord, you have opened up our eyes and comforted us and caused us to see the truth. You have taught us so much and we have so much, Lord. Oh, Lord, we know that we run the risk of falling into the same sin, the same mistake of Israel of old, that, Lord, while you blessed them, we sought foreign gods. We bowed the knee to idols and sought after pleasure. Please, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would forgive us for inactivity. Forgive us, Lord, for any laziness in the expression of our faith and of the upkeep of our relationship. Please, Lord, we ask of you come and transform and change our hearts, Lord. Renew that passion within us that we once had at the beginning, we pray. Lord, give us anew and afresh today. 
a real spiritual burden, Lord. We ask, O oh God, that we would participate in the work together with you. Lord, as you seek to bring the gospel to this world, please, Heavenly Father, designate to use us, that we would be your hands and your feet, your, your representatives here in this place. Oh, Lord, please speak through us, challenge and awaken, quicken and comfort and encourage Lord, we know that you will not be unfaithful. You cannot be unfaithful. For Lord, you are, you are faithful. We pray, Lord, that help us to enjoy that faithfulness. Help us to rest in the work of Christ on our behalf. Help us, O oh Lord, awaken once again that sense of that we owe you. That we are owned by you. That, Lord, we are called not just to live our salvation for pleasure, but for purpose. The building of your kingdom. Oh Lord, we do pray these things for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.